There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, Martin here. The tragic death of George Floyd in the United States has shone a spotlight yet again on racial inequality all around the globe. In Australia, recent protests about Indigenous deaths in custody and incarceration rates remind us that true reconciliation still has a long way to go. With that in mind, we acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we're recording today and pay our respect to the Elders past, present and emerging. All of us here at Policy Forum also acknowledge that the journey towards reconciliation is the responsibility of all of us every day. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is presented by policyforum.net and comes to you directly from Crawford School of Public Policy, where you can learn from some of Australia and the world's leading policy experts. We offer a wide range of short courses and degrees. Most recently, we've added the Graduate Certificate of Environmental Management online. Now, this might be interesting for you if you're keen to learn about topics like disaster management, food security, or environmental policy. And if you've lost work or had to reduce hours due to the coronavirus crisis, you might be eligible to study at a reduced rate under the federal government's higher education relief package. Do check it out. You can find out more details at crawford.anu study. Now, before we get started, I want to say a big, big thank you to all of you who took part in our live recording of Ask Policy Forum on Sunday evening. It was our very first online live podcast recording, so needless to say, we were nervous and excited, but the discussion was incredibly engaging, and that was mainly thanks to your great questions. If you missed out on the live event, you can listen to the recording, but only if you're a member of our podcast group on Facebook. So if you want to hear all the action from this weekend's pod, join us at Policy Forum Pod on Facebook now. There you'll find the recording, plus you'll be able to get in touch directly with our presenters and other listeners. We're looking forward to chatting with you there. If you listened to last week's episode, you'll know that we've been trying something a little different to a normal Policy Forum Pod panel discussion. We recently launched a new COVID-19 microsite on the Crawford School website, which is full of analysis on the impacts of the pandemic. The new microsite brings together crucial insights from our leading researchers on the public policy impacts of the crisis, ideas for addressing the myriad challenges humanity is facing, plus some really interesting personal accounts of how our work and lives have changed during this time of crisis. You can check it out at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash COVID-19. 
So today, in this second episode in our two-part series, we've once again invited three authors that have contributed to the new COVID-19 microsite to discuss the issues that they have raised, why they matter, and how we might move forward. Later on, we'll discuss the need for building trust through better public messaging to get everyone on board in the fight against the coronavirus, and we'll try and get a clearer picture of what the future of higher education might look like. First, we want to again talk about leadership, but this time from a different angle. COVID-19 doesn't respect political and geographic boundaries, and this has revealed some great power vacuums and rampant politicisation in a time when what we really need is resilient leadership. So what are the qualities of the institutions and leadership styles that are most successful when it comes to tackling such crises? Here's Associate Professor and Director of the Institute for Infrastructure in Society at Crawford School, Sarah Bice, to share her thoughts. COVID-19 is clearly a very special type of crisis. It is certainly the most disruptive, and I have to say I use that word reluctantly along with pivot. Uh, It's the most disruptive, impactful, and wide-reaching crisis that I've experienced in my lifetime. And I have to say the turn of a decade often brings with it this sense of hope or renewal or new beginnings. But for most people, 2020 has instead so far offered threats to health, livelihoods, and lifestyles. It's offered uncertainty about the immediate and longer-term future. It's been an in-your-face kind of year, urgently demanding attention and requiring strong leadership and collective action. In technical terms, so far, 2020 has really kind of sucked. But we're here today not to wallow in our shared sorrows. Instead, we're going to metaphorically pull up our socks, Policy Forum listeners, and we're going to consider just what type of leadership can help us, as Crawford School Director Professor Helen Sullivan puts it, through and out of crisis. And her related Policy Forum pod on just that topic is well worth a listen. But what is it that makes COVID-19 a special type of crisis? How can we better understand it? And how does cultivating a better understanding empower us to adopt a style of leadership that is most likely to be effective in addressing the crisis and its recovery successfully? Aren't you glad you turned into this policy forum pod? So I think a disclaimer is necessary here. We at the Crawford School most definitely do not have the answers, capital T, capital A, but we do spend an awful lot of time researching and thinking about how decision makers, from public administrators in the trenches of public service, to elected leaders, to captains of industry and civil society champions, take those decisions. We think about how they collect information, how they consider evidence, and how they convince the public that the paths that they choose to forge are the ones that we should follow. Getting people on board, especially in times of crisis where response times are limited and decisions often need to be taken on the basis of very limited information, is paramount. Professor Arjen Boyne, of the Leiden University Institute of Political Science, for instance, identifies five common pathologies that leaders tend to exhibit in crisis. One of these is just waiting for all the facts and figures before making critical decisions. 
Another is initiating the blame game. And boy, are we seeing that at the moment, particularly in my home country of the United States and the Trump administration's punitive measures towards the WHO and certain of the really disappointing discourses that they've been rolling out lately around COVID-19. But leaders with self-reflection and an awareness of these pathologies are equipped to not only identify them, but also to avoid them. And knowing just what type of crisis leaders are facing can also help them to respond more effectively. And that's right. I just suggested that there are even different types of crises. I think that the very human nature of crisis, the ways in which it's emotional and urgent, tends to suggest to us that it's not a very analytical topic. You don't sit around a cafe with your buddies casually discussing the contours of a crisis, especially when you're in it. That's true. Ain't nobody got time for that. But entire fields of research devote themselves to defining crises. Researchers review crisis case studies to understand their diverse forms and functions. They examine how leaders structure their responses. And they analyze all of this data in an effort to distill which responses will be the most effective for the particular style of challenge faced. At the ANU Crawford School of Public Policy, Associate Professor Carolyn Hendricks and I co-coordinate the Cases in Contemporary Public Policy course, and I love this class. You should come and join us. Our students use up-to-date public policy cases to understand what happens when policy challenges move out of the textbook and into real life. And we spend the middle section of that class devoted to helping our students understand and identify the different types of crises that they're likely to face and the leadership styles demonstrated to be most effective for each type of crisis. So here's a taster of that class and a question for you. What type of crisis is the COVID-19 pandemic? If you said transboundary, winner, winner, chicken dinner, if not, I mean, honestly, what kind of nerd is going to come out with transboundary crisis as the answer to that question? Unless you've taken our class and then you'd better get it right. That, that's a joke, guys. Okay, so what is a transboundary crisis? Research shows that many large contemporary crises are increasing in their complexity and interconnection at a global scale. This growth in mega disasters has led scholar Kathleen Tierney to proclaim them the new normal, and that wasn't so long ago. These transboundary crises are signaled by their crossing of physical, temporal, also known as time, and functional borders. They threaten various geographies without a clear beginning or end. So what makes COVID-19 a transboundary crisis? Let me say that this is my own conclusion, but I think it makes sense and it's indeed helpful to understand COVID-19 as a transboundary crisis. So remember that transboundary crisis crosses three really important conceptual borders, physical, temporal or time boundaries, and functional borders. So in a very physical transboundary sense, this pandemic has affected an extensive part of the world population, with the virus now reported in all but a handful of countries. The physical spread is complicated by temporal expectations that this pandemic will disrupt societies and organizations for an unpredictable period of time. 
And the pandemic knows no functional boundaries either. It has forced a multitude of governments to declare states of emergency, initiate internal and external border closures, and to enact travel restrictions more reflective of wartime. It has closed offices, schools, and universities. We felt that. It's cleared out city centers and locked down citizens, often at threat of fines, and in some cases, even criminal penalties. The uncertainties wrought by this transboundary crisis are making power vacuums apparent, and they're reinforcing existing fault lines in international relationships. Okay, dear listeners, are you with me? Now that we may be agreed that we are facing a transboundary crisis in the form of COVID-19, what does that tell us about the leadership style best equipped to respond successfully? Resilient leadership. Reams of research are available to support the appropriateness and importance of resilient leadership to addressing a transboundary crisis like COVID-19. And three characteristics of resilient leadership stand out. So in our remaining few minutes together, let's briefly consider each of these. The first is leadership culture. Back in the day, you know, in less complex times, crisis leadership concentrated on preparedness and crisis avoidance, and this was achieved through the two R's, readiness and regulation. Transboundary crises still demand that leaders are prepared, but they can't be as dependent on those two R's. Instead, the leadership culture that can respond successfully to the pandemic will be flexible, nimble, and humble. The second component of this type of resilient leadership is change readiness, which might involve stress testing plans or adopting a trial and error approach. And here it's the hammer and the dance metaphor used by our very own Professor Quentin Grafton. We've learned this really well in the pandemic response. Small moves forward are made and monitored. And if all goes well, decisions can be made to progress based on those trial outcomes. But at the same time, we all have to maintain a willingness to redraw and to begin again, as the data suggests we should. Change readiness is underpinned by this clear, shared purpose. It's one that allows decision makers to remain collectively focused on revising their decisions and actions, however necessary to reach their shared goal. And this is where that humility comes in, because safe management of a pandemic until such time as a vaccine is available and new measures and systems can be put in place is necessarily going to take careful decision-making and trial and error. And for that leadership culture and change readiness of resilient leadership to work, we come to our final characteristic, the importance of networks and relationships. Here, leaders need to draw upon a variety of knowledge and expertise, including local knowledge, in order to inform their decisions and break down silos. Transboundary crises have little respect for such divisions, as their name suggests. Internal organizational engagement, whether it's of public servants or corporate staffers, is just as important as external. This supports decision-making, and it builds effective external partnerships and it helps to build in redundancies. Should one organization or role be unable to fulfill fulfill the required tasks to meet the pandemic response, others are able to step in. 
And that fills me with a bit of hope because the COVID-19 pandemic presents a leadership challenge worthy of a generation and perhaps even a lifetime. As unique as our current crisis is, it is of a type with precedent. And my hope is that we recognize this. We do have the knowledge and capacity to better understand and respond to this pandemic. Understanding COVID-19 as a transboundary crisis points policymakers, the private sector, and civil society leaders to the riches of resilient leadership. The characteristics of resilient institutions and leaders provide an important and proven approach to moving through and out of transboundary crises. And that is exactly the kind of leadership Australia and the world need right now. Thanks so much for that, Sarah. You can read her piece and many more at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash COVID-19. And we'll make sure to drop the link in the show notes for easy access. Let's take a quick break here, but we'll return shortly to talk about public messaging and how to move forward in higher education. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. COVID-19 has really brought out the best and worst in our societies and governments. Some of the public messaging we've seen in Australia and overseas has left people confused. A recent Guardian poll found that only 35% of Australians trusted the media with reporting on COVID-19 and only about half felt well informed by government. To give us his thoughts on this essential issue of trust and public messaging, we're now joined by Associate Professor Matthew Sussex from the National Security College. Okay, well, the topic I wrote about was uh, about public trust and government messaging um, at a time when, frankly, the public needs it most. When there's a global pandemic and the risk that thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Australians might get infected with a disease that has a relatively high mortality rate, it's really, really crucial that government gets messaging right. Um, And at the time that I wrote this piece, I think it's fair to say that at least the federal government hadn't yet sorted out what its messaging was going to be. And there was a lot of community anxiety and there was a lot of concern over exactly what they were supposed to do. Uh, in order to prevent themselves from being exposed to to COVID-19. And so um, 
throughout this article, I, uh, I made a number of sort of policy recommendations that I thought might be useful for, for government to just have a look at. Um, and they might seem obvious to you, but uh, I think they're, they're worth repeating, particularly since we're now looking as though we've crushed the curve and we're coming out the other side of that pandemic, but with no guarantees that uh, it will it will go away and that we won't potentially get a second wave. So under those circumstances, government messaging is still really, really important. But I'll just run through some of the, the, the key highlights as I saw them in this article. One of them was there was a tendency by Australia's elected representatives early on in the COVID crisis to obfuscate, to be asked uh, questions by journalists such as, how many cases are we predicting in Australia? What does the data look like? What does the modelling look like? Um, and when we had time and time again elected leaders take refuge in sort of long-winded monologues without answering the question, it, it kind of made them look shifty. And that's a problem because that discourages and diminishes public trust in leaders. Uh, and this is really, as I say, a, uh, an example of when leaders have to step up and lead. Um, the second one sort of following on from that is that leaders shouldn't lie. Uh, we had an example of the uh, Social Services Minister, Stuart Robert, um, who said that the Centrelink website had crashed due to a, uh, a cyber attack um, rather than what he knew to be the truth, and that was that uh, a whole bunch of unemployed people tried to access the system simultaneously and, and it couldn't help. Um and uh, and that again is 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 something that leaders. Whereas when we do politics as normal, we sort of come to expect that that leaders will tell half truths and untruths and be economical with the truth. Really, isn't very helpful in in this kind of situation. A few other points to note: one, that uh, political capital was really being taken over by uh, social capital to bring all Australians on board to make sure that they complied with things like social distancing, to make sure that uh, they had you know, good hand hygiene habits, that they were aware of who they were around, and that they didn't go out uh, when absolutely not necessary to, to go out. Um, and I think that's an important point as well, because nowadays, um, in uh, in early June, we're seeing a sort of return to to sort of politics and business as usual, and a return to the use of political capital by political elites. Now, just as people get sort of fatigue with being cooped up in at home all day, I think politicians also get fatigued with having to uh, you know uh, rely on 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 society to come with them, and and they default back to their original settings. But that's something to watch, I think. Um, Government messaging as well throughout COVID, um, I think, needed to emphasise a bit better um, that, particularly to young people, that choices uh, had consequences. And um, particularly people who went to the beach um, and, uh, you know, went out in public in large groups, uh, that was a challenge. Um, and, and getting people to, to actually behave and to, to follow government advice was, was not always something that was, uh, was necessarily communicated all that well. Um, I think also one of the advantages that the eventual decision to do a national cabinet, um, brought was that it put a lid on buck passing. Uh, between state 
and Commonwealth. Now, recently, of course, we've seen a return to some extent to problems of federalism, um, and we saw it over the Ruby Princess uh, issue with Border Force getting into uh, a fight with the uh, the New South Wales government over who was responsible. But by and large, I think there was relative cohesion, and, and I think it's it's hopeful. There's, there are hopeful signs that this might continue and be one of the big benefits of the post-COVID era. Um, and above all, I think people need better information and they need consistent uh, good information so that they can assess risk. We often talk about how government, uh, you know, people don't trust government and people don't trust political parties. But I think the thing that the COVID crisis brought home that we don't talk about so much is that government didn't really necessarily trust the people very much. Um, and I think was probably quite surprised with the the decisiveness of the electorate to actually want to constrain themselves to their homes and not go out by and large unless it was absolutely necessary. So just as, uh, you know, I think people can learn um, from from government in that government is often trying to serve their needs, sometimes not in a very effective messaging way, but trying to serve their needs, I think government can also learn from people that you can do more and expect more from them than things like, uh, you know, sort of trite three-word slogans, which has become quite characteristic of, of the democratic politics that we, uh, that we see today. Um, that's more or less the article in a nutshell. So my hope out of all this uh, is that, a bit like I was saying before, just as, as government, uh, I think, can uh, learn of society, that society can in fact be trusted to do things that it might otherwise not want to do. Um, I think society can also learn off our elected representatives that that they are trying to do the best they can, often under really, really difficult circumstances. And that's something that the COVID crisis highlights. And if that's one positive thing to come out of this pandemic, the fact that Australian society and that Australian elected officials can treat each other with a bit more respect and a bit more tolerance, then I think perhaps that's that's potentially a really good thing. Thanks so much for that, Matt. Don't forget, you can check out his piece. It's on the microsite at Crawford, which is crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash COVID-19. Finally today, we welcome Libby Hackett into our virtual podcast studio. Libby is a principal at Nouse Group, and Libby's piece on the Crawford COVID site looks at how higher education institutions are adapting to changing demands in light of COVID-19. Let's hear from Libby now. What I wanted to look at today is, um, and through the article, uh, is to look at the losses and the sector has, has had a significant financial loss of between three to four and a half billion dollars across the sector as a whole. Um, and that the estimates are that around 21,000 jobs could be at risk, but that is probably on the high end of the estimates. What I'm particularly interested in is the different responses that we've seen. So looking at how the Australian federal government has responded and how the state governments have responded, and not just in their responses, but in some of the discourse around that as well, because I think that it's giving us some really interesting indications about um, some future 
uh, options uh, for the for the higher education sector going forward. In my article, I, I, I outline three models um, that this has raised. So the core public funding model, the economic growth model, and the market intervention model. But I'll come back to those in a second. The other bit of background that I want to give before getting onto the three models is to think about the nature of our universities at this point in 2020. So they are really interesting institutions. They are large, complex, not-for-profits. They are uh, classified by many as public institutions, but I think probably more helpfully understood as civic institutions, because they're now receiving about half of their funding from government, but about half, 45%, is actually from non-government sources, from commercial and private sources of income, including international student revenue, but also industry partnerships and philanthropic giving and other um, areas of commercial and private income sources. Some of our major research universities receive as little as a third of their income from government. Now, this is a real success story. Um, And in public policy terms, a real win-win because you're getting all of that brilliant public benefit of of the education and the research um, public benefit as well. But it's that mixed contribution of public and private um, funding into that. So all was working well uh, on the whole. Um, uh, And then COVID has happened and we've had this significant loss of three to four and a half billion. Well, The really interesting point to note is, as I said, that difference between federal and state government responses. So the federal government was very quick to put in a response to to shore up core funding, core public funding for all teaching, all domestic student teaching, and for core government research. And so you think, okay, the government stepped in and it supported universities for core public funding. So where's the problem? How are they facing this deficit of three to four and a half billion? Well, that is because of that other 50% of their income that comes from non-government sources, and it's a significant amount. Um, And we have seen, obviously, the international student market Um, significantly suffer with the global lockdown and lack of movement um, uh, able um, during COVID-19. And so that's where we're seeing those losses. Um, I think another thing to really important to understand about the Australian university system and how it's funded and and this mix of public and private funding is this really interesting nexus um, that, that the crisis has highlighted between international student income and research income or research funding. There's a really interesting relationship there because over the last 20 years, Australian research universities have increasingly relied on international student income to bolster research funding. Um, In 2020 or certainly 2018, 2019, the government um, has paid for about a third of the university research spend. Now, you know, it's up to public government how much they invest and they continue to invest in research, um, but that has covered about a third of university spend on research. The universities are contributing about 55% of that themselves. So of total university spend on research, 55% of that is being funded by the university, cross-subsidised from these commercial and private income sources, including predominantly international student fee income. Um, could compare that to the UK, just to, to, to get a contrast and a comparison, it's about 25% the same figure in the UK. So UK universities will contribute about 25 to 30% of the cost or total spend on research. 
whereas in Australia it's as high as 55%. That's quite a significant difference. Now, you could argue, and there are many that do, that that is a demonstration of, un- of Australian universities over-investing in research for their own benefit because it increases their uh, reputation, their research reputation, their rankings reputation, and all of the benefits that come with that. But actually, if you look at um, the uh, total research spend from our university sector, as a proportion of GDP, it is identical to the UK. 0.7% of GDP uh, is what universities are spending on research. That's a really interesting statistic because what it shows you is that Australian universities have not uh, over-invested. They have increasingly invested their own internal resources through cross-subsidy in order to keep up with that international level and international market. Um, and that's really interesting because the Australian government and Australian society benefit from that broader, wider, bigger, deeper research base in Australia. And obviously there are economic externalities and um, benefits and spillovers to that. Uh, and you know, no problem fundamentally with there being a mix of public and private um, investment in research. But the question, of course, is, uh, and this is the Warren Buffett question, what happens when the tide goes out? So as I said, this was all working okay until um, COVID-19 and the global lockdown and that three to four and a half billion. And essentially the big risk is that, yes, there's damage to the education export market, but also there's potentially short, medium, long-term damage done to the Australian research base and and, and a potentially a reduction in the Australian research base in in the medium term. And so let's look. Let's look at the three models of of uh, future funding and that and that um, social contract that relationship between government university and society and three models of looking at that going forward the first number one is the core public funding model and this is what we've seen in the federal government's response in the Australian government's response to covid-19 this idea it's a traditional framing of universities as core public institutions. As I said, they were quick to respond and to shore up that core teaching and research funding. Um, But the question remained, you know, what about the other 45%? What about the other half of income, um, of activity, of commercial and private activity, highly successful export industry? Um, Where was the support for that? Well, you could argue that it's entirely appropriate what the federal government did because you know we're in a um, an unprecedented global economic and health crisis and there were significant priorities for federal government spending so surely it's appropriate that the government should um, should shore up teaching and research funding but not go beyond that well that's a really interesting argument but it does frame universities in that core traditional um, form of public institutions. And what it fails to do is to recognise the value of both education as an export market and the tens of thousands of jobs that um, are connected to that export market, but also um, undervalues the the extended research base as well and suggests that the value of that extended research base is, um, is limited in public terms, and that's just not the case. So that's a really interesting um, framing of that traditional core public funding response um, that we've seen 
in the federal government's response. And you can see it in the political discourse from the Australian government as well. When you hear a range of ministers talking about their response to different sectors, um, listen to how they talk about um, supporting the tourism sector or the um, the um, airline industries. These are other successful industries that the government is keen to support. But for universities, they'll use very different language and they'll talk about shoring up these core public funding sources, but they 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 don't use that same language um, about education as a as a key export market, even though, as I say, it's the fourth largest export industry in Australia and the largest service export. So that's the first model. The second model is the economic growth model. Um, and this is the idea that universities are absolutely central, um, key pillars of economic growth and future economic growth in Australia. This is the idea that we would be pursuing a high skill, um, high value innovation um, led economy and that universities really sit at the heart of that as these sort of engines of economic growth, both in terms of driving up skill levels, but also that research and industry interface and that driving of innovation and, and spin outs and all of that um, great stuff that our universities do. Um, we can see this framing of universities in the state, in some of our state government responses through COVID-19. And that's been a really interesting development. So if we look at the Victorian state government, for example, they've put in um, both the $45 million emergency package to support international students that were stranded in the state, um, and also $350 million investment fund. And I think that is particularly interesting. That investment fund is to support research partnerships applied research and capital works across the universities in Victoria. Um, this essentially does three things in my mind. It recognises the value of education as an export market. It sets the role of universities up as, as key to economic recovery as we start to go through and come through this, this next period of recession. And thirdly, it recognises and establishes universities as major players in the future economy, as major employers, as industry partners, as driving that high skill, high value economy and innovation. Really interesting contrast um, to our uh, Australian government response in terms of that, in terms of the language and the framing and the political discourse we see around it in these announcements from state government. Really interesting. The third is the market intervention model. And this is perhaps sitting somewhere in between. Essentially, it's a model that um, is very comfortable with the idea of a mixture of public and private funding going into our universities, which are obviously delivering a mix of public and private benefits. But it suggests that perhaps the government shares in the risk um, of the commercial and private enterprises in line with the public benefits and public rewards that it gets from those. So recognising more the value of those externalities and those spillovers that come from the international education export mar uh, market as an export service market um, and the broader research base. So recognising the value of those to Australia and the Australian economy. And this market intervention model essentially would, would suggest that the role of government is, yes, to us to provide that core public funding for research and teaching, but also perhaps to share some of the risk and to intervene 
where there is temporary market failure in otherwise in otherwise successful markets. And they would intervene in temporary market failure because of the value given to education as an export market and to research as a broader research base. And what this might look like are things like um, short-term loans being put in place or stimulus funding being put in place. And again, interesting, even since I've written the article, um, the New South Wales government has come out and put a $750 million loan um, facility in place for universities. And again, using this language around this value um, of universities as major economic players around the education as an export and around the shoring up the research base. Um, and so really interesting to see the New South Wales state government coming in to this market intervention model. Now, I'm, I'm not about to predict the future, and I don't know which of these three um, the federal and state governments will continue to take forward. Um, but we do know that the approach they take will in some ways shape and define the higher education sector. Now, to what extent is an interesting question, because, of course, what I've been describing are institutions that are increasingly self-sufficient, um, but you know, seeking government support during temporary market failure. So the extent to which um, they are impacted um, by these models is an interesting question itself. But nevertheless, um, the approach that the Australian government and state government take, whether it's core public funding model, that traditional model, or whether it's that economic growth model, or whether it's that um, laissez-faire and then market intervention where there's where there's market failure model, um, will make a big difference on, on the future of the sector. What I'd like to see personally is this brave and optimistic framing of the higher education sector. I think it is a jewel in the crown of the Australian economy and society and should help us shape and develop our economy and our society of our future and should play that central civic and economic and public role in the future. And I think in order to see that, uh, in order to achieve that, brave and optimistic future. We need brave and optimistic leadership. And that is something that I believe we have seen in, in large amounts through this crisis. And it's something that I would like to see continued in the leadership um, at government level of our university sector and that partnership approach with the university sector that will allow us to, to build towards that brave and optimistic future. Some really great insights from Libby there. Thank you so much for sharing them with us. Don't forget you can find Libby's, Matt's and Sarah's pieces in our COVID-19 section at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash COVID-19. Listeners, we really hope you enjoyed today's episode. Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, these are only some of the places you can find us. So if you don't want to miss out on any future episodes of Policy Forum Pod, I highly suggest that you subscribe on any one of those platforms or wherever you normally get your podcasts from. And please do also leave us a review. It's always great to hear what you think about the podcasts. But if you'd rather reach us directly to give us your ideas, feedback or questions, you can find us on Twitter as APPS Policy Forum. That's Apps Policy Forum. You can send us an email at podcast at policyforum.net or better yet, join our Policy Forum Pod Facebook gang. We'll be back with another episode of Policy Forum Pod next week. But until then, stay safe and healthy and support one another. Cheerio for now.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.